Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Bird. How you doing? Great, Chris. We have nobility on today. <laughs> we do indeed. And what a great way to start our third year then with Julian Montoya, who is the Senior Vice President of the Noble Collection. And we're going to find out all about that. And we're going to talk a little bit about movie licensing in this time of great change. And this is the Playground Podcast. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, thetoyguy.com, marketing and media agency, Chizcom, and Precise.tv. So, Julian, thank you for spending the time with us today. Thank you for having me. Julian, you are sitting at the center of the pop culture universe for adults. And it's an enviable place to be. You are, sir, are probably (laughs) sitting on the throne. <laughs> oh my goodness. Game of Thrones, I would think. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think all of us envy you, uh, all of us who love pop culture. And uh, so why don't you tell us uh, how did you end up being at the center of the pop culture universe? Thank you for that introduction. I'd say it's, for me, it all started, it was 1997 when I joined Lucas Licensing as their director of international licensing. It was on episode one was under production in uh, in Leavesden when I got uh, when I got the call and it was the beginning of what has been a very very rewarding career in this in this industry um, I got to know the Lucas uh, people through my work at 20th Century Fox where I had uh, I was on the marketing team that did the video campaign for the original one last time it was before DVDs and it was before the special editions um, I had uh, developed the trailers and the key art packaging, and as a result, would go up to Lucasfilm a few times to meet with them, get everything approved, struck up a rapport, and when this opportunity to join Lucasfilm presented itself, jumped. My wife and I and our two young daughters moved up to uh, to San Francisco and was there for episode one, which, as in anyone in this business remembers, there was a lot of expectation and there was a lot of pressure and there was a lot riding on these on these new films. And that was how I started my career in licensing. It was the halcyon days for movie licensing. You know, DVD still wasn't a thing. So if you wanted to see movies, the theater was where you'd go. You'd have to wait six months to see it later on on, on VHS. By the time I joined Lucasfilm, they had already wrapped up the deal with Hasbro. So Hasbro had secured master rights. Shortly after I joined was when Hasbro acquired Galoob and Tiger. So as the person responsible for international licensing, the toy piece was obviously a big part of that. Did a lot of great things while we were there. One of the ones that I'm uh, most proud of was the, the Lego Star Wars deal. I got to be in the room when that deal came together. You know, I learned a lot over those three years. I had a chance to work with uh, Howard Rothman, who was head of Lucas Licensing, who's a brilliant businessman and an even better person. And he's the guy who gave me the break in this industry. During my time at Lucasfilm, that I learned the secret or the formula for success, as, as Howard taught it to me, was that success equals reality divided by expectations. In the case of Star Wars, the reality was it was a huge merchandising hit in terms of what was sold. You know, on a scale of one to 10, where eight is a success, we delivered a 12. People were expecting 18. So that's (laughs) where that ended up happening. You know, so the expectations were 
pretty insane. But the reality is it was very successful. So Julian, tell us a little bit about the Noble Collection and what it is you guys do, because you have really taken movie licensing and IP licensing to a new level with this. I joined Warner Brothers in uh, 2000, and they were kicking off efforts on the Harry Potter licensing program. I had seen the Noble Collection products in Sky Mall, for anyone old enough to remember Sky Mall magazine. <laughs> you. And they would they had done some Lord of the Rings swords, and I thought that the, the quality was, was absolutely beautiful. The pieces were, were stunning. The photography was great. And I thought this would be perfect for, for Harry Potter. So I reached out to the Noble Collection, and it turns out that they had actually figured that on their own that the Harry Potter brand would be a good fit for them. When I sat with them at the licensing show, it was clear that they could see the, the fit between Noble Collection and, and, and Wizarding World. And the Noble Collection is still one of the longest standing, currently active Wizarding World partners. And they've always had the license for over 20 years. They're an interesting company in that they started off importing replicas of medieval armor uh, out of Spain. And what they noticed was that this was excellent quality materials, beautiful craftsmanship, but there wasn't really being presented well to collectors. So they focused on this exquisite photography, beautiful catalog, and really presenting it uh, in a way that um, collectors would respond to it and grew from there into developing some of their own products. So they started learning how to make all these different items and eventually started creating their own products. The Harry Potter piece was not their first movie license. They had this sword that started selling really well all of a sudden. Sales popped. And as they started looking into it, they realized that there was a, a TV show called Highlander that had a sword very similar to theirs, but it was obviously a, a, a unique original sword. But theirs was pretty close. And what they decided to do was get a deal. Let's get a licensing agreement in place and let's make an officially licensed version of that sword. That deal turned into later on a deal for um, the sword from Braveheart, from the film Braveheart. Um, and then other collectibles started building from there. We started working them on Harry Potter. It was the Noble Collection that started doing prop replicas of the Harry Potter wands. And they quickly realized that the Harry Potter fan was so informed and they loved all the characters so much that there was an opportunity to go much deeper into the canon than just the top three characters. A lot of the things that you offer are things like prop replicas. You have the Time Turner, which featured in some of the uh, Harry Potter books. So how do you go about deciding what you're going to extrapolate from a property and present? Because this is not a, this is not a toy. This is something that somebody's going to wear as a, as a gem or as a jewel to brand themselves and to communicate with other Harry Potter fans, just as one example. How do, how do you pick out those elements that you want to create? Well, some elements are clear in the script when you read it that they're going to play a big part in the film. Or from the, or in this case, we have all, all the books. So we know what are the iconic pieces. So you try, you try to pick out a piece that has a, a key story beat or that plays an important part with the, the characters that the fans love. Some pieces are just in the background, but they're so beautiful that when you go on a set visit, that you ask a few questions about it, and you realize all these um, craftsmen and, and artisans that are working on every aspect of this of the, of the production spent so much time, there's so much detail, especially on these Harry Potter films. And some pieces are just so beautiful that you think, People are going to want that either on the shelf or, or in the house or, you know, or, or in their collection. 
you know, with a, a fan base like Harry Potter, there's elements that are more in the know. And if it's a piece that you know is from the background and some and a friend of yours recognizes it, you can do something as in your face as a T-shirt that says Harry Potter, or you can have a replica of the of the Sorcerer's Stone on your bookcase. I have had the opportunity to watch the real evolution of the adult consumer going from something that I remember I had a clerk in a Toys R Us once told me that he hid all the new action figures when they came in so the adults wouldn't buy them to today where this is a very coveted consumer class. So who are these folks and how does price factor in? We actually have four quadrant consumers. We've got, you know, adults and kids. You know, the Noble Collection has been able to expand into a, in a, an area that we we call toilectable. It's a term that we've trademarked. Our bendy figs are a good example of that, where if you're a collector, um, you love the detail, you love the deco, you love the accessories, the packaging, everything about it screams collectible. But if you're a kid, it's a bendable figure. And if you're an adult trying to get his kid involved in the collecting, you know that they can, it's not going to break. It's safe for them to play with. It's $13. Um, So you can introduce them into it. We find a lot of fans love introducing their their kids into into their fandoms. 30 years ago, when you use the term fan, it was just referring to basically just sports. And if you were a fan of anything other than sports, then you were a nerd. And I'm old enough to know when nerd wasn't cool like it is now. The adults can have sometimes a bit more discretionary income to buy higher end pieces. But the reality is we have prices, we have things ranging from a bronze Game of Thrones, Iron Throne collectible for $5,000 to a $13 bendy fig. What about the the gender split? Like It it seems to me that, just from my observation, Mm -hmm. that Women tend to be very drawn to the Harry Potter series, uh, Lord of the Rings, maybe less so to some of the more action figure-based properties. Is that accurate? It can be. You know, in the case of Harry Potter, the appeal is dual gender. It is men and it's women, boys and girls. There really isn't. It's not a boy or a girl property. It is the, the real dual gender uh, property. Lord of the Rings has always had a very strong female following as well because of the, the strength of the characters, characters like... Galadriel. That's where like the different form factors come into play. Brian Mariotti said it best when we talk about Funko, saying there's a lot of women love Game of Thrones, but they don't want a Game of Thrones action figure on their desk, but they'll put a pop on their desk. So you can appeal to either the younger audience or to male or, or female, depending on the, on the creative execution that you do. But as far as a prop replica goes, the reality is I probably, you know, we probably sell as many Harry Potter wands to men as we do to women. Same thing goes for Hermione and and even um, secondary and tertiary characters. I noticed that most of the properties that you have developed collectibles for are established long-term properties. At what point does a property become eligible to be considered for the Noble Collection? Because we see movies come out every year and we see licensing programs certainly in toys every year. When does a property make that leap And what is it about that leap that makes it a viable business for you? As far as uh, like brands, consider the ultimate evolution of a brand is when it no longer belongs to the people who own it. So like, for example, you know, Lucasfilm and Disney own Star Wars, but 
they recognize it belongs to the fans. And when you can work on an IP or franchise like that, that belongs to the fans, you're held to a little different level of accountability. You know, fans will forgive you if you make a mistake, but a betrayal, that's, that's, that's the end, right? So you have to be extra careful. They also don't want to think that someone's working on this IP just because there's money in it. They'd like to think that the people working on the IP love it as much as they do. And that's definitely the case with the Noble Collection. Part of what we look at is the longevity of the IP, the appeal, and also, is it something we want to work on? The fact is, um, the same creative team working on a $5,000 sculpture is working on a $13 bendy fig. And the reality is, the bendy fig is actually harder to make than the $5,000 piece. I'm amazed now being on the manufacturing side with Noble, seeing how much attention goes into every product and how they sweat the details. Um, it has to be something that you really want to work on, and it's a lot of fun. We recently were, were proud to uh, have secured a deal with uh, Universal on Minions. People know us for our chess sets, and we announced that we're developing a, a Minion chess set. Chris and I have really been closely following what happened to the movie industry over the last year. What was the impact on movie-related products over the last year, not having any themed movies come out, except for, I think, Wonder Woman, that released on uh, streaming. In, in our case, and I think for companies dealing more in collectibles, it, wasn't, it was less of an impact. Because if you think about it, the Wonder Woman uh, film, she, that character was so well-established in, in Justice League and in the first Wonder Woman film, so we can put out product with Wonder Woman and people not realize, well, there wasn't really a movie because she's become so uh, popular. That does such a great job with the character. Some people realized that Doritos had Doritos promotion tied to the theatrical release, but there was no theatrical release. But on our side, being collectibles, they've got longer tails. The, the, the collectible category isn't as time sensitive. Collectors will buy that piece three months, six months, a year, in some cases, even longer after a movie comes out. If they connect with that, with the movie or the character, they'll want to buy that, that piece. Do you have an opinion on theater release versus at-home streaming release as it applies to the impact it has on uh, product sales? The pandemic, more than anything, you know, it did what any dramatic world-shaking event would do, and it's just completely shook things up. So whereas there was a standard windows between theatrical and video, which would give you like a second bite at the Apple at retail, that's all collapsing. I don't think the theatrical experience is going to go away. I think uh, recently the Sony chairman, Tom Rothman, pointed out that um, there's the analogy that the Roaring Twenties came after the 1918 pandemic. And there's a lot of pent up desire now for people to get out of the house and experience life with other people and do things get back to normal. And for many people, movie theaters were normal. I think they're going to go back to going to movie theaters. What I think the bell that we can't unring, though, is the collapsing of the windows between theatrical and streaming. And I think you're going to see tentpole films. I think they're still going to do well theatrically. But other than that, I think that the, the window's just going to get shorter. Um, uh, and in some cases, not even exist. As far as excitement it creates for fans, there's so much content available 24-7. And the excitement is driven by a couple of factors. And one of them is the, the studio advertising to get people, make people aware it's streaming now or it's in theaters now. They're still going to do that. It's just going to be another way 
for people to access the content of which they can get 24-7. There is going to be, for instance, I think a Batman movie coming out in 2022. Mm -hmm. uh, when you have something like that coming out, do you do a product specifically against that movie? And do you anticipate a certain multiplier for the sales of your other Batman products when a, when a movie like that comes out? To answer your first part question, yes, we've got some uh, uh, movie-specific products that are tied to come out when the film is is released. Um, the reality is anytime one of these uh, big films comes out, it does have a, a ratcheting effect on the overall brand. Regardless of how big the Fantastic Beast movies are, and they've been very successful, the Harry Potter business benefits tremendously. So when there's a new, the new Fantastic Beast film next year, our Harry Potter business is going to see lift because all these things do is just become another invitation for, for fans and audiences to come back into the world. But these films just serve as a, as another touchstone for these uh, fandoms to re-engage. I want to ask you a little bit about the cultural phenomenon of fandom, because it really is something that, that we have seen. My, my joke has always been that my mother and my grandmother collected Hummel figures <laughs> which were little porcelain figures. And right. today's moms are collecting props from, yeah. <laughs> from from movies. How how has fandom both united and defined elements of the culture from, from your perspective? I think what's happened is it's just much easier today for these fans to connect. If you think, you know, go back 30 years, if you were a Star Trek fan, you had to go to a Star Trek convention. And then later on, you could go to Comic-Con, uh, today you can post on a fan forum every day. So it's easier to find other people who are drawn to these different fandoms and to share the fandom. And there's different levels. I was struck as you were talking, um, first of all, about community. And uh, I have, uh, I've been to uh, San Diego Comic-Con. I, I was on a panel there. I uh, was blown away by the number of people. But most of all, I was struck by the sense of community. Uh, and, and acceptance. But I was really blown away by the amount of product that was being sold on the floor of the convention. And I'm assuming you have a booth? We're looking to have a booth at the upcoming San Diego Comic-Con when it happens uh, next year. And if, uh, assuming it goes forward, we're planning to have a booth at New York Comic-Con this year. So I know Comic-Con is huge for the collectors and the exclusivity of it is important. Are you planning on creating specials just for Comic-Cons or other cons? It's part of what we're looking at. What, what can you do to encourage people to come to your booth and engage them while they're there? And, you know, the reality is they put together shopping lists of what they want to buy at the con early because there's only so much they can spend. So, you know, the sooner you can figure that out and, and get on the radar, uh, the better. So it's, it's something we're looking at. What I hear from other toy companies is that they consistently underestimate how many they can sell, that they think that they're going to sell, you know, a thousand pieces. Well, they could have sold 2000 pieces, but the exclusivity is part of the, the whole deal. Correct. And it's it's interesting that Comic-Con tends to be one of the places where you can nail the perfect you know, formula of demand less, you know, 20 percent. You tend to be able to do that at, <laughs> at Comic-Con. Yeah, Leslie Fiedler, the pop culture critic, once said that a great book, he was referring to books, is one in which the characters take on a life of their own outside of the book. And I think you kind of alluded to that a little bit. And so I'm, I'm interested from your perspective, 
What drives the passion? Is it the characters? Is it the plot, the story? What is it that you think gets people really engaged? You know, and it, it, it depends on, on the person, to be honest. The things that I love about Star Wars or Star Trek or, or Serenity, Firefly, um, would be different from another fan. You know, some people get into it from uh, the design aspect of the crafts. Others, the relationships between the characters, you know, a mother and, and, uh, and a daughter or a father and, and his daughter, um, or just the overarching story or the scope and scale of it. It's, I don't think any two fans will experience any fandom the same way or with the same level of passion, but it's almost like a matrix of points that connect with them, with the characters, the stories, the settings, um, the themes, and that, that's what draws them them in the ability to to delve deeper into the world which you can do through licensed publishing and behind the scene books and stories uh people tend to really enjoy getting under the hood of the of the ip that that they love when you're considering what you might want to bring out from a movie do you do research to find out what will be the most compelling or do you respond to consumers or how does that decision process come about Early on, the best source is the studio, our licensing partners. They're closest to the material. They'll work three years from the time they get the script and put the partner together. You've got the franchise team, which are very working very closely on this. You've got some very talented product development teams. And they're your best source for initial uh, direction. And they'll tell you the key themes and characters and key beats in the, in, in, in the film and they will share some insights into things that either pay off down the road or that they really believe are going to resonate with their fans. Once you've got a program going like a Harry Potter, it's listening to the fans. You know, what do they say they like? We engage with them through, through our website and they write to us. They reach out to us. They tell us what, uh, you know, what they want. So the fans are the best source once things are going. But at the beginning, early on, honestly, I do think our licensing partners are the best source for determining direction where you want to head at the beginning. What's your number one item right now? It uh, depends there. I can tell you that we have uh, a chess set called uh, the Wizarding World chess set, which is one of the best-selling chess sets on Amazon right now. We have a mass market collector wand, which is a blind bag wand. So the wand selects the wizard. You don't know which one you're going to get. Um, that's available at Walmart, and that item is doing very well, and fans have really, really connected with that with that skew. And of course, our you know our Harry Potter, you know, not just Harry Potter, but all of the Wizarding World wands. Um, I don't know if uh, a lot of people know this, but we supply the wands that are sold at the Universal theme parks. We offer over seventy wands, and many of the wands are, are struck from the actual production wands. We'll get the actual wands. We'll be able to strike the molds. And the ones are so authentic to the to the real one. You bring up a really good point, and for for fandom, and I think that that's something that's really driven in the traditional toy market. A lot of the detail intensiveness, it really is authenticity. Authenticity is probably one of the most important things to the fans. It is, it's particularly in collectibles, because there is an expectation in terms of uh, the price point and um, what this piece represents that they, the, the details are extremely important. The, 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 the deco has to be right. And it's not just the product. Our Harry Potter uh, wands come in uh, a, a unique box. It looks like it came right out of Alavander's uh, wand shop. And you source paper from Japan just to get that box right. Because for the fan, the experience begins the moment they bring that piece home. 
and the packaging, and we've all seen unboxing videos, but in a, in a collectible, the packaging is part of the experience. And in our case, because the box is part of the, the, the lore as well, we get to begin with the packaging of it in, uh, as the first point to engage with that collector. Right. Do you ever do limited editions and is there an aftermarket for any of your products? We've done some limited editions, but the it's not our our pieces aren't like some of the limited run statues, etc. There are some that are limited, but it's not about that aftermarket secondary secondary market with uh, with uh, with our products for the most part. You're gonna do NFTs. It is, you know, it's a category <laughs> where we're talking to our licensing partners about that as as well. There's, uh, um, I, I I got a kick. I was at my uh, local hardware store and they had a sign out front and welcoming everyone to come in and check out their fungible tokens. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> their fungible tokens. I like yes. that. Fungible tokens. That's fantastic. I know we're going to be talking about that more on the Playground podcast as we go ahead because it really is a hot button issue and it's something that's definitely in the collectibles area. I think there's a there there. I'm just not sure how how it's going to evolve over time, but there's something there. Okay, Julian, we're going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests here on the Playground podcast. Tell us a secret. I will... Uh, share with you my most embarrassing experience in this industry. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> I was at Lucasfilm. This was uh, right before episode one, Star Wars episode one of the Phantom Menace was coming out. And we had arranged for a screening for Hasbro, the senior executives, to see the film for the very first time. The screening was taking place at um, uh, Industrial Light and Magic, which is Coincidentally, not far from uh, where my house was that I was renting. And, you know, this was a big deal. We had you know, Alan Hassenfeld was there, Alvarecchia, um, uh, Tom McGrath. This was after all these expectations that we're going to finally see the film. And it was going to be followed by lunch at the ranch with, uh, with George Lucas. So we get in the theater and the president of Lucasfilm gives a welcome speech. Howard, my boss, gives a welcome speech. And then Alan says a few words, Alan Hassenfeld. And then we're going to finally see this movie. And we all take our seats. It's a small theater, seats about 30 people. And the lights start going down. And you could hear an audible gasp, like, "Ah, here it is. And then the lights started going back up again. And then the projectionist called over the speakers, is there a Joel Montoya in the screening room? I looked back sheepishly. I put my hand up. And then he said, your wife's outside. You took the house keys. She's locked and she can't get in. Can you come out and give her the keys? That's a great story. That's well, they didn't want to, obviously they waited for me because they didn't want to restart the film. So I ran out, explained what's that, came back in and the president looked at him and said, can we start the film now, Mr. Monson? <laughs> we've really enjoyed this call today with you. And, and I just, as we've been talking, we've been talking about all these wonderful properties but then it occurs to me that what about those properties that we really don't hear too much about anymore? And so I'm interested in knowing what are some of the classics that maybe don't have that kind of iconic uh, collectible status anymore? And what can be done to bring a classic back? It's a good question. And it's interesting. It depends on the property and, and, and the person. But, you know, a lot of it's hard to imagine this now, but there was a time before the special editions 
that Star Wars wasn't that big either. You know, Star Wars had, had gone very dormant. There was no toy partner. Hasbro wasn't making toys. Galoob wasn't making toys. And I remember uh, Howard telling me the story that, you know, he was going out there and they just wasn't getting interest from the toy licensees. And uh, he would he met with George and he was telling him that it looks like it's having a hard time bringing Star Wars back. And George said, look, it's not gone. It's just taking a break. It'll come back. You know, these I, these great IPs have these fan bases that love them and are just looking for any reason or excuse to just re-engage with them. And sometimes the studio reboots it. I think the new Jurassic movies are absolutely phenomenal. Um, not so much a reboot, but just, you know, go back, let's go back into that wonderful world. And sometimes some grassroots stuff takes place and things come around. Like not a lot of people follow anything like Star Trek, but there's a really loyal fan base there. And that's never going to go away, I don't think, anytime soon. It just depends on when the time is right. These beloved brands always have some dad that's going to introduce his son to it or some mom that's going to introduce her daughter to it. Given the right circumstances, they can come back. Julian Montoya, Senior Vice President for the Noble Collection. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Amazing stuff, really amazing stuff. And uh, we really appreciate your insights and your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. And I want the Harley Quinn baseball bat. It's a good piece. It's a good piece. (laughs) This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about issues that are coming up in the toy industry. And we're coming out of the pandemic. We've been vaccinated. We're looking ahead. Richard, what you got on your mind? Well, Chris, I have a question for you today. You are the toy guy. (laughs) And in as such, uh, you make it your business to see as much new product as possible. I know you cannot talk specifically about any products because they're embargoed, but I'm wondering if you are able to tell us a little bit about any general trends that you are seeing for 2021. Well, I think there are some really interesting trends coming out for this year, and it's going to be a little bit of a different year, but I think the toy companies are being what I'm calling aggressively conservative, which means that A lot of the toys I've seen are line extensions. They're brand enhancements. They are things that are very innovative, but they're under a brand that's already been established in the marketplace. So they get to go along on the coattails, if you will, of all the promotion that happened in 19 and into early 20 and the kids' momentum. But you're not trying to break through with something new. I think that's really significant. We just spoke with Drew Vernon of Tony's, and he had two of the major trends that I've seen. One is audio, and the other is social and emotional learning. You're going to see a lot in both of those areas. Following up on that, we've got diversity, because that's going to continue to be big. And it's going to be really interesting to see how both SEL and diversity are interpreted so kids can play them. Unboxing is still going to be hot. We're going to see that as we see packages become part of the play experience. We're going to see community being important. Drew talked about that. And that's really what we've been talking about is when the consumer takes over your brand and it's not yours anymore and they are all fans and they're all people who use that. But I think some of the biggest trends we're going to see are things like integration with Roblox as that's where kids are spending their time. We're going to see much more on YouTube 
I'm taking a little bit of a wait and see on influencers to see how impactful they continue to be because that market's become so crowded and so competitive. It's just going to be really interesting to see. But I think that bottom line, there's some great toys coming out. There's a lot of creativity, a lot of arts and crafts and a lot of make and share stuff. But it's going to be an interesting year. And as you have seen, a lot of people are pretty optimistic about how this year is going to be overall. Last year, we we saw a breaking of the $100 barrier. We, we saw parents investing uh, in products that, that were in the triple figures. And uh, I'm just wondering, when what you saw this year, is there a follow-up to that kind of price busting? I think strategically there is in certain cases, but but the bulk of toys that I've been seeing so far are really fairly reasonable. They really are in that uh, 15 to $30, maybe $50 range. There are certainly going to be some marquee items, but I think it took everybody by surprise that the Barbie Dreamhouse sold as well as it did during the second and third quarter last year. And I think the companies know that that was a bit of an anomaly. So they're not racing very expensive products into market. You know, Chris, I, I'm thinking back to uh, before the recession, was it in 2007? I sure, think. Yeah. And uh, it was a year before that, I believe Hasbro came out with a horse. Oh, yeah. With uh, <laughs> so $300, sure. buttercup or something. And it sold like crazy. And we all said, you can sell a toy for over $100. People will pay. And then a recession hit. And everybody kind of forgot about that moment. And I wonder if we didn't rediscover it last year. I think to a certain extent we did. I think that it's always market-driven. It's always funny because when I entered this this business, the idea was you you couldn't sell a promotional doll for more than fourteen ninety nine. So when something like a a pretty cut and grow came out in the early eighties, and I think it was sixteen ninety nine or seventeen ninety nine because it had refillable hair, uh, the people <laughs> were biting their nails because they didn't know if the market would take something that was that expensive. So I do think that it's still a product-driven business. At the end of the day, if people want the product, they'll pay for it. I mean, look at the people who are paying a premium for a PlayStation 5. Look at the people who will pay a premium for things that they can get on eBay. We don't have the Cabbage Patch Slugfest anymore in Kmart <laughs> because if people really want something, they can go on eBay and pay a premium for it. don't want you to speak to any specific product. But did you see products that you thought, hmm, this is a home run? Or did you see a lot of triples and doubles? Well, I think the number of home runs we see in the in the year are very small and people are hoping for triples and doubles. That said, I've seen a I've seen a couple of home runs. And what makes them a home run? I think it's because of the engagement and the play level and the wow factor. That you look at something, you go, Oh my goodness, I can't believe somebody is that nuts and came up with that. And it's it's the kind of thing that the, the six-year-old in me goes, oh my gosh, I need that. Okay, well, Chris, we'll see what happens when the toys get revealed. We always will, and we're glad you're listening to us. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, and my cohort, partner in crime, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, marketing and media agency, Chiscom, and Precise.TV. And we will see you, or rather, you'll hear us next time.